This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now the war in Ukraine, they're heading into winter and it has changed dramatically. The Russians are bombarding Ukraine with heavy artillery, cruise missiles, everything. They've thrown everything at the Ukrainians and civilians are the target. And of course, the power grids, everything that affects daily lives. It's really shocking stuff. They have lost on the battlefield. And according to the think tank, the study of war, which is respected, an independent think tank, Ukraine has liberated a total of 74 1,443 square kilometers of territory from Russian forces since this war began on the 24th of February. I'm grateful for that statistic to our next guest, Johnny O'Reilly. He's an Irish man. He is a journalist and a filmmaker. He's lived in Moscow and he's lived in Ukraine and he is covering this war. He's a very brave journalist. He's just back in Kiev. He has been to Herson and he joins us now. John, you're very welcome to the stand and thank you very much for joining us. You're right in the heart of this and that statistic you sent me about the uh, liberated territory, 74,444 square kilometers is a lot of territory. The surmise I just offered there of why Sarovacan is back in the frame doing his stuff, which is basically shelling, but worse than uh, cruise missiles, the whole lot, to try and destroy the morale and indeed the infrastructure of Ukraine in a very systematic way. Is that the game now? Because they can't win on the battlefield, it seems. Yeah, I think that is the game. Um, you know, it's, it's sometimes uh, easy to forget 
the hybrid nature of this war, especially given all of these images that have come out from winter trenches that look identical to uh, images from winter trenches from the second, from the first world war. But what Putin is fighting is, is a hybrid war. He's fighting to maintain power at home and to, 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 um, provide narratives to the propagandistic virtual reality that he has created in yes. the minds of the people in, in, of half the population in Russia. So while, uh, he's incurring losses on the ground, he uh, is attacking infrastructure across the country in order to uh, give the impression that these are uh, military victories, yes. or at least m- progress within the military uh, situation. But there's another uh, reason for it, and that is that um, the calculation, is, from their point of view, is that by destroying the infrastructure in Ukraine, while it does not affect the military battle, it does impact the West's support for Russia. It extracts, sorry, for Ukraine, it extracts a higher price from the West yes. in order to fund both the military and the civilian uh, infrastructure in Ukraine. In Ukraine, So his calculation is that at a certain point in, in, in a few months, perhaps, that uh, international solidarity for Ukraine will wilt and he can therefore force Ukraine to the negotiation table and try and extract some kind of a gain for, for a political gain for, for him. Yes, and there is evidence from the United States, the Republican Party in particular, that there are senior figures and influential voices questioning the commitment the United States and Joe Biden has made to Ukraine, and the amount of money in particular, which is vast, and arms, of course. Now, you've been to Kherson recently. Kherson was a city, is a city that it was important. It was liberated by the Ukrainian troops about a fortnight ago. The Russians ran away, if you like, left it there. There were fears that it was a trap. What was the atmosphere like in Kherson, Johnny? Well, Kherson's a, a fairly interesting city. It's about the same size as Cork and uh, quite similarly positioned. It's a maritime city uh, at the uh, at the edge of the, the estuary, the um, Dnipper estuary, which leads into the Black Sea. Um, most of the industry there is related to fishing, um, shipping, um, and it's it's a small city with uh, many people living in houses rather than apartment blocks. So it's known as a, a very kind of pleasant, easygoing, uh, very warm city. It's it's not quite as cold there as it is now in Kiev, and they have very searing uh, summers there. Um, so the atmosphere that I witnessed when I was there was quite bizarre in a sense because the first couple of days it was as you would expect having, you know, liberated the city after eight months of Russian 
atrocities, uh, the people were uh, just so relieved and delighted. I mean, it was like the country had won the World Cup, but not just for one night, for like three nights running. It was just constant elation. People were coming up to me in the streets just for being a foreigner and giving me presents and thanking me and getting selfies with me. Literally, the soldiers who I was uh, with, a lot of them couldn't even go outside because they were mobbed so much. So that was uh, the the, the one emotion that you would have expected and that, that... you know that was very much um immediate when you when you when you just arrived there but uh with each successive day that i was there the artillery attacks on the city got worse and, and you know many more of them uh, with each successive day um so on about the fourth or the fifth day you got to feel this kind of cognitive dissonance where people were really happy and continuing with selfies and taking photos and wanting to embrace everyone else in the background of this terrifying artillery attacks everywhere and unfortunately they have continued now i know that the city has um um, they've returned some of the electricity and the water after it was turned off during the withdrawal by the russians um but the artillery attacks have increased and uh people are starting to leave the city um so it's it's still uh, very much on the front line yes there are a lot of ukrainian troops there the the well the shoreline is effectively the front line and the city is built on the shore so it's it's a very dangerous city um and it's quite a fascinating one for um any journalist or or visitors at the moment so they essentially the the russians ran away conceded that they couldn't hold the city and have now are now in the process of trying to destroy it and destroy its infrastructure that's roughly what's happening yes yeah that's what's happening it it it, it was always pretty much on the cards because yes. there was only two or three bridges through which the russians could provide supplies and logistics to support their 20,000 strong army on the far side of the river. So once those bridges were destroyed, it was kind of inevitable that they would have to withdraw at a certain point. And they've been withdrawing quite methodically over the past two months. And unlike what happened in the north of Kharkiv, where the uh, Ukrainians took them by surprise and routed them and recovered much, you know, many tanks and armored personnel vehicles. This was a much more um, methodical withdrawal by the Russians. Yes. And uh, those Russian troops, which incidentally are uh, the best of the Russian army, they're the most experienced ones, they were the ones who were tasked with taking Odessa and Mikhailov, uh, but they failed in that task. But still, those troops have now withdrawn to much uh, more protected positions on the far side of the river. And the, the Ukrainians are now looking at ways to cross the river and to push them further back towards uh, the Crimean border. Now, you lived with a family of partisans while you were in the city, uh, Johnny, and you got, I'm sure, an insight into the lives of people there. And there's also a, a, another complicating factor 
that there are many pro-Russians in Kherson, and indeed all over Ukraine there are places where, and particularly uh, down in the east of Ukraine, where there are many people who identify as Russians. But uh, tell us about this family you lived with and their perspective on what's happening to their country. Well, it, it's very interesting to to be there and to spend time with these people because you get a sense of the difficulty that Ukraine will have after the war about how community relations will evolve because in Kherson, the, the consensus was amongst the people I've spoken to that about 30% of the people before the war were either pro-Russian or agnostic. Yes. Um, after the invasion, that went down about 10% to about 20%, but then many people were forced to take the Russian side, you know, at the, you know, under threat. Um, and now many of the people who uh, had collaborated with the Russians left with the Russian military withdrawal. Uh, but those are, there are also many who are left behind. And many of the people that I spoke to, including this, the, the partisan family that I stayed with, had identified their neighbors and people living in their area who were collaborators, they claimed, and they also claim are continuing to act as spotters yes. for Russians who are currently lobbying artillery into the city. Now, whether those accusations are true or not, it speaks to the tension within the society yes. that is going to be very hard to manage not only in Kherson, but in the all across the east, um, especially in the Donbass, where the figures for pro-Russian sentiment is is higher. Yes, but I spent a, a week with this family who I've been filming for much of the last couple of months. One of the the grandson in the family was a partisan who um, had committed uh, act partisan activities, including blowing up uh, trucks where you, you, trucks of Russian technical equipment and also Russian soldiers. He was kidnapped by the Russians, tortured, and managed to get free by convincing his captors that he would, you know, Broke turn him. Yes. Work for them. But as soon as they released him, he escaped and rejoined his uh, battalion who were fighting from the Ukrainian side. So we picked him up uh, a few months ago and started filming him. And then when the city was liberated, we uh, went back with him to his grandparents and spent a week with his grandparents. And these are people who are in their late 70s who are very uh, proud and patriotic Ukrainians who organized much of the partisan activity in their in their neighborhood um, and they, you know, reveal to us some of the acts that their neighbors conducted on Russians, including yes. very, uh, very stunningly, visually stunning was uh, w one particular building just up the road from where I was staying. So you can imagine this was a, uh, an area, quite a poor area on the side of the river. Many of the houses were kind of self-built, a mix of both wood and brick. 
Um, and in amongst those houses, there's one huge mansion, which was designed in this very minimalist Scandinavian style with a big pristine lawn and a infinity pool right at the end where the lawn spills into the river. And this building really sticks out like all the others, like and totally sticks out in this neighborhood. And of course, the FSB general from the Russian side identified this and said, okay, I'm going to take this one. And he moved into that property. And uh, over time, some of the neighbors re- recorded and uh, passed on information about his, about the FSB general's movements. And then one afternoon in July, uh, the high Mar- the building was torn apart by one single HIMARS attack. And when you see that what one HIMARS can achieve, it's quite stunning. The, 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 the huge slabs of marble and cement were thrown over 100 meters away. Wow. The building was completely destroyed. And with it, the FSB general and a group of people he was meeting at the time, nobody else in the neighborhood was even injured. I, I, I saw that building, and I also saw another building in the city center, which um, housed a lot of Russians. And that also was destroyed by HIMARS. It, it really what are showed, HIMARS, uh, uh, Johnny? HIMARS stands for High Mobility Artillery, uh, artillery vehicles. They, ah, okay. It, these are the game changer in the war for ah, the okay. Ukrainians. And where have they, where have Ukraine got them from the, from the Americans, the British, or a variety of sources? For, from a variety of sources, but the majority of them have come from the Americans. And what's really interesting about them is that they're, is their mobility. They're very small, light, vehicles. When you're in the war zone, most military vehicles are actually bigger than the kind of commercial lorries that you're, you, yes. you come across normally. HIMARS are smaller than that. They're, uh, they've got smaller wheels. They're, they're almost like little electric lorries. They just move around, zip around really quickly. Um, but they have uh, two extremely important uh, benefits. One is that they are precision, high precision rockets, as high, uh, you know, as precise as an extremely expensive cruise missile might be. Yes. But also that they are very easy to load and offload. They come pre-packaged in a group of six missiles that you basically just put onto the back of a lorry and off you go and you pre-program where those six missiles are going to land and then uh, drive back to get another package of six missiles. Um, And so they've been hugely successful in targeting uh, Russian HQ, uh, Russian um, constellation of um, Russian vehicles, and also uh, bridges and other important logistic hubs. Um, They have been the game changer for Ukraine against a much better armed well, uh, against a bigger army with mm, a higher quantity of armaments. What the Russians don't have is this high precision rockets. And, uh, you, you know, when you see the pinpoint damage that these rockets have done in a place like Kherson, you realize that uh, the, the Russians don't stand a chance against them. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Johnny, the Ukrainian people we see, there are about, I think, over 60,000 of them here now. But the Ukrainian people that are enduring through this awful, brutal uh, attempt to destroy their country and to murder innocent civilians in this brutal way. Tell us something about the, their character. I mean, I, I know it's a nation and you can't sort of generalize too much, but for those of us, and that's everybody in the West who's looking at this, seeing the destruction of apartment blocks, seeing the, the bodies, see, hearing of the rape uh, of women. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's un, un, unimaginable is the word I'd use. We, I couldn't imagine, for example, enduring it and enduring it with a sense of, and this is what comes across from the Ukrainian people, a sense of optimism. We are not going to lose. We are not going to allow this general Sarovakan to do to us, to destroy our morale, to destroy, and if they destroy our buildings, we'll build them up again. Can you explain the character of those people and also where the morale derives from. Is it the leadership of Zelensky, the president, for example, or is it in their DNA from previous wars? 
I think it's in their historical DNA. And one of the reasons it's hard for us to understand it and to relate to it is because Ukraine has been in wars forever. Yes. Uh, Ukraine means on the edge or on the border. So it's always been this kind of borderland area that has been fought over by various empires in the past. Every yes. century, there's been constant fighting in this area, not least the 20th century, where the highest concentration of deaths from the Second World War were in y Ukraine. Thereafter, you had uh, the, the, well, before that, in the 1930s, you had the Holodomor, the, fam the famine in which millions of people of Ukrainians were, were killed as well. So they, they, they have this in their historical DNA, this fighting spirit. And it's something which they turn to very easily and very seamlessly when attacked. So w one thing that I have remarked is that like everyone is very aware of their historical legacy and uh, a lot of the mythology a lot of the imagery that you see around the place recalls that yes. you know the great warriors in the past they're warrior poets they're national poets um so all of this mythology feeds into the the kind of national drive for independence and freedom and uh, it's it's a very strong rallying call uh, for the people here it chimes with a lot of the stories they've been told all their yes. life about their grandparents about their history so it 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 it, it was a very um effective rallying call for Zelensky to uh, to articulate when it came to creating the right morale yes. for this fight. Do, do you think, Johnny, to, to move to the politics of this, that Zelensky has said repeatedly, and other spokesmen and women for on British television, you'd see in Newsnight, they seem to have, they're very articulate, they're very determined, and you frequently hear him say and them say, we want everything back. And they're talking about Crimea. They're talking about the Donbass that you've just spoken there in the East, that we want every piece of our land back. Is that a negotiating stance, as it were? Um, because in the Donbass, that would be difficult because a large proportion, 30-40% of the population identifies Russian, maybe more. Where are we with that? Is it possible, for example, that the West might cool a bit and say to Zelensky, and some of them are saying it, get to the negotiating table now and do a deal, which seems to me to be almost insulting given the suffering that has been inflicted on them by the Russians. What's your take on all of that? Well, I, I think it's going to be very hard for um, Zelensky politically to uh, even consider negotiations before they have uh, pushed the Russians back to the borders Russian-controlled pre-Feb 24th. That means a much smaller proportion of Donbass and the and Crimea. Once they get to that point, then the question will arise as to what what kind of a settlement could there be. But 
the complication factor there will be what's going to happen to Putin once that very clear victory is in sight for the Ukrainians. And if Putin falls or if Russia crumbles, if the Russian army crumbles and disappears, the Ukrainians could well push all the way back to the borders pre-1991, in which case they may well try to retake um, Crimea. Yes. And uh, the extent to which the Americans will have control over the Russians, of the, uh, the Ukrainians at that point, will will be questionable. But, you know, it's very hard to predict what could happen. Of course, yeah. I, and I, I'm sorry for asking you in any way to predict an outcome, but what's in my mind when I do that is the disposition of the West and people in the West. The other thing that I wonder if you've thought about, I'm sure you have, what happens to Putin and what's going on in Russia? Can he go on concealing? Can he go on saying, okay, to General Sarovikan, do your stuff, wreck the infrastructure, let them have her son, and we'll crush it to the ground in ruins and we'll destroy their infrastructure. We'll give them a winter they won't be able to endure. Is that where he's at? I mean, what's your take on where, because you lived in, 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 Russia, you know the Russian mentality ab- around Putin. Well, the, the Russian political system is a house of cards. It's built yes. on the uh, appearance of power of one individual. And as soon as that power is subverted by a significant loss, uh, you know, on the battlefield, that that power will dissipate very quickly, almost immediately. A lot of and them are falling out of windows, generals and high people in in high positions in various fields. They they are actually falling out of windows and being found dead. And that's that's an that's an indicator of Putin's weakness. If he has to resort to assassinating yeah. potential foes within his own system yes that 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 shows exactly how weak his system is so you can expect that to continue you can expect higher profile characters to fall out of windows and uh, ultimately putin will end up falling out of a window you yes. know uh, I, I i don't think this the war will only end with his ouster with his death and yes. uh, it's it seems to me to be the, the logic end game of any military victory for the Ukrainians. Putin w- will find it very hard to maintain his rule at home, having you know sent over one hundred thousand young Russians to their death yes. on uh, on on what appears to be you know on, on what will appear to all Russians to have been a complete folly once uh, the uh, once. You know, they once the Ukrainians achieve victory. Uh, just a final question, Johnny, about the winter. This is going to be a long, hard winter, obviously. From your own point of view, can you prevail? Have you been frightened during this experience? This is a hell of a gig. Um, well, I mean, for me personally, I'll be fine because I'm not a soldier. I don't have to be on a front line. I can move around. I can, you know, when but Kiev is, in, to be Kiev is in the firing line now, isn't it? 
Yes, it is, but it's only in the firing line from um, the, the odd cruise missile every now and then. It's not in the firing line from, right. you know, hordes of um, Russian soldiers or from, you know, multiple artillery rounds in, in a way that uh, Mariupol was. Like, people need yes. to remember that Mariupol was just destroyed not by rockets, by expensive cruise missiles, but by tons and tons and tons yes. of small artillery. So it's only when the Russian army gets near uh, it, it, can you feel any real danger. And for now, they're quite far away. But I think the, yeah, the winter is going to be very harsh. But the, the, the you know, and a strong argument goes that it'll be harsher for the Russians than the Ukrainians yes. on the front lines because the Ukrainians are better supported, they're better clothed, yes. and uh, they've got a better command structure. They're in their own home country so that they, ha they do have time off to go back to their families. Yes. Um, while the, many of the Russian soldiers are there uh, out of obligation, some are forced to be there. You know, there was one quite interesting intercepted phone call that was released by the Ukrainians, and in it was a young Russian soldier on the second line outside Bakhmut uh, explaining to his girlfriend that his job solely on the second line was to shoot any deserters on the front yes. line of the Russian side. <laughs> so, you know, the, yeah. the Bakh Bakhmut is famous at the moment because, well, for many reasons, but it is where the Wagner group are um, right. their trade. This a group of mercenaries. It seems to be a political project to for the head of that group, Prigozhin, who has ambitions for greater political power within Russia. He wants to demonstrate the viability of his fighting force in comparison to the main Russian army. Right. And the Wagner group, they are mercenaries. Yes. Yeah. Are they Russian mercenaries or international mercenaries? They're mostly Russian mercenaries. Right. There have been okay. stories about them, you know, bringing Syrians and, and, and other groups in there, but the vast majority of them are, are Russian mercenaries. Right. And Bakhmut is a place we should look out for. Uh, Johnny, thank you very much for telling us your story and uh, for uh, showing us or allowing us to imagine what is going on in Ukraine. We really, really appreciate it and we're very grateful to you. Johnny O'Reilly is an Irish journalist and filmmaker and quite remarkable the story he's told us today. We're grateful to Johnny, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.